at the life of Elisha. So I'd encourage you to open with me your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2 once again. 2 Kings chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 10 through 15, 2 Kings 2, 10 through 15, in a sermon that I've titled, Driven and Powered by the Holy Spirit. Driven and Powered by the Holy Spirit. 2 Kings 2, 10 through 15. For several weeks now, we've been looking at the life of Elisha, and we've pointed out that Elisha's life, it mirrors the life and the ministry of every servant of the Lord. Now, up to this point, Elijah had been occupying the place of action. Elisha has been ministering. He's been following Elijah, and Elijah's been the focal point. He's been the one doing pretty much everything, and Elisha has been learning from this example. He has been uh, learning from his teachings all throughout this time, but now what we'll see here this morning is Elijah or Elisha begin his own personal ministry. The two had spent somewhere around 10 years together at this point, but God God would supernaturally take Elijah up to heaven and equip Elisha for the ministry. In the New Testament days, we read about Christ ministering alongside his disciples, spending time teaching them, leading them by his example, until one day after his death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended up into heaven and he essentially passed the torch on to the disciples to carry on the ministry that he began. All throughout his ministry, he was preparing, he was teaching, he was equipping these believers for what they were going to be doing on their own. And when the day finally arrived, he empowered them with the Holy Spirit and sent them off to be his witnesses. The same is true for, for every single believer. The moment we're saved, God empowers us with the Holy Spirit. And the more that we're in his word and reading the Bible, the more we are driven and equipped to be God's witnesses out in this world. We're to pick up the torch that Christ first lit and bring the light of the gospel to everyone that we can. God is the one who calls us. God is the one who confirms that call through a series of tests that we looked at several weeks ago. He is the one who prepares us, and he is the one that equips us for all the ministry. And we respond, or as we respond properly to, all of, to God's call and to the various tests that we have to go through, we're then filled with the Spirit to perform the ministry to which we have been called. And if you can remember... The most revealing test, the test that we were looking at last week, the most revealing test that Elisha endured was having to answer Elijah's question as to what he could do for him upon his departure. Word had spread that Elijah was going to be leaving, and Elisha kept following Elijah everywhere they went. And so Elijah asked him a question. He said, what can I do for you? If you're going to ask me of one thing, this is my version. He, asked, he said, if you can ask me one thing, what would it be? It says in verse number nine there in 2 Kings chapter two, he says, ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. This question was meant to test the heart of Elisha for if he were only following Elijah for any sort of personal gain, it would be evident by his response. Elisha's response though revealed that he was only interested in serving God and serving God's people in such a way that only God would be glorified. And so he said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And this response revealed three things. First, it revealed that Elisha was incredibly humble and modest. 
After serving Elijah for around 10 years or so, where Elijah was basically doing everything, Elisha viewed himself and his own skill as so far beneath his master Elijah that in his estimation, to have any sort of impact or similar impact to what Elijah had, he's thinking he's going to need a double portion. He's going to need extra help from God. He was willing to acknowledge his own weakness. He was willing to acknowledge his own inferiority. He was willing to acknowledge his own insufficiency, which is incredibly modest and, hum and, and humble. And let me tell you something, that there is nothing wrong with being modest and there is nothing wrong with humility. In fact, I think we need more people like this today who can look upon their situation and look upon the calling that God has given to them and realize if they're going to be successful in any way, they need all of God's help upon them. We need more people that can make that, make that acknowledgement. I think as it is, there are probably too many people who think they know everything and they have everything they need for their ministry and for their service to be successful without having God's help. But the only problem with such a mindset is that God isn't in the business in sharing any spotlight and anyone who is attempting to steal, that, um, steal God's glory and to take God's credit is not going to amount to much. The true servant of God is the one who can be happy knowing that what he's able to accomplish is all due to God working in him and through him. When we're serving the Lord in modesty and serving the Lord in humility, we're not striving for self-glorification, for self-promotion, but we're giving all the praise and all the glory to the one place where it is deserved, and that is to God. As Isaiah, as Zechariah rather, Zechariah 4, 6 states, it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Let it be all him that gets the glory. So first, Elisha's response demonstrated incredible modesty and humility. But second, if Elisha was going to take over training the sons of the prophets that we read about here in 2 Kings chapter 2, he would need a double portion of God's spirit of wisdom and power. Now, we don't know for sure how long Elijah had been training these sons of the prophets that come up here. But for Elijah to take over Elijah's ministry and this position, he would need extra wisdom and extra knowledge from God to do just that. And so we see that, again, aspect of humility there as well. And then third, to take over Elijah's position just in the eyes of the people, not just these sons of the prophets that are mentioned. Elisha would need more than just a title. He would need God's spirit filling him and resting upon him. So it wouldn't even be good enough if he had Elijah's coat or if he had a badge that said, I'm the prophet now. He needed more than that, more than just a, a title that people can know that they, how to refer to him. He needed God's filling and God's spirit resting upon him. At the end of Christ's ministry, he encouraged his, his disciples that he would be sending them the comforter, which is another term for the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would be the one to prepare them for their individual ministries once he's gone. And first, he assured them that the Holy Spirit would abide with them forever. In John 14, verse 16, the Bible says, Jesus says, rather, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. Jesus first prayed that, and then Jesus declared that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things. In John 16, verse 13, he said, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So he's going to abide with you forever, 
and he's going to guide you into all truth. Very crucial to have both of these. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit that the gospel writers would be able to recall everything about what Jesus did. Everything we have recorded in the New Testament was only, be, was only possible because the Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to recall all things to memory. I think we kind of have this idea that maybe the disciples were following Jesus around with a pen and paper and recording everything they watched him do, but that wasn't the case. They were experiencing everything for themselves the very first time, and it wasn't until years later that the Holy Spirit came and empowered them and recalled all these things to memory that they were actually able to put pen to paper or pen to parchment, whatever, to record what we now have as the Gospels. And the Holy Spirit showed them all of those things as he was the guide into all the truth. He would show them not just things that had been done, but the Bible says that he's going to show them things to come, and he would glorify Christ by revealing more of the mystery of his work. In John 16 and verse 14 and 15, the Bible also says, it says, he shall glorify me. Jesus is saying this of the Holy Spirit. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So he's going to show them future things. In the book of Acts is where we see many of these promises fulfilled. We read Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse number 89. So this is after his death, burial, and resurrection. And right before his ascension. It says, but ye shall receive power. This is, this is verses 8 and 9 of Acts chapter 1. He says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So we can then conclude that the greatest need for the Christian to be effective in what Christ has called them to do is to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Because without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be effective witnesses for Christ. So if this is what we need, what is required for us to receive what Elisha asked for, a double portion of the Spirit? When we look at the life of Elisha, we see two components. First, we see that he had to pass through Jordan. He had to pass through Jordan. Remember, Elijah didn't ask him what he could do for him until Elisha had journeyed to Jordan with him. And the two of them passed through the divided waters of the Jordan River on dry ground. Elisha's will was being tested every step of the way. They started in Gilgal, and they kept traveling to one city, and to another city, and to another city. And every time they're traveling, Elijah's saying, Terry here, Terry here, Terry here. And Elijah says, listen, as long as the Lord liveth, and as long as you're alive, I'm going with you. And so he's passing every test as they continue to go, and he's journeying all the way with them. But his will is being tested every step that they take. The true servant of God must not be self-pleasing or self-seeking for the Spirit of God to use him. He must be willing to go wherever the Spirit of God leads. So he had to pass through Jordan first, but second, he had to focus on his master as he's doing it. Elijah told Elisha that the only way that he would receive a double portion of the Spirit would be if he saw God carry Elijah away. So Elisha has to focus on his master. The lesson is summed up in the words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians 2.20, where he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me 
and gave himself for me. What he's saying is that the believer's life should be so focused on magnifying Christ because without our lives magnifying Christ, we're not going to be a true servant of Christ. Look at what we read. Your Bibles are open to 2 Kings chapter 2. Notice what we read in verses 10 through 12. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. The Bible says, And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Elisha saw it. I love what it says there at the beginning of verse number 12. And Elisha saw it. Of course he did. Of course he saw it. Right? He'd passed every test up to this point. From when they were in Gilgal and when they were going to leave, Elijah said, Terry, here. He says, I'm not. Say what you want. But this is what God has called me to do. So if the Lord is still on his throne, if he's still alive, and as long as you're still alive, if you're going anywhere, I'm going with you. He's following him every step of the way. So do you think it's really that much of a surprise when Elijah says to him, listen, you're asking a, a big ask here. But I'll grant it to you. God will grant it to you. If you see when God takes me away up into heaven. Are we really surprised that Elisha's focus was then laser-beamed on his master, Elijah, the entire time? Do you think he was probably thinking, oh, okay, that's great. Oh, what's that over there? No. He wasn't distracted like that. If he's thinking, okay, we don't know the timing. It wasn't as if God had said, all right, at 2 p.m., at exactly you know, 36 seconds past 2 p.m., a chariot of fire is going to come down from heaven and swoop up Elijah and take him away. So exactly at that moment, whatever you've been looking at and focusing on everywhere else, you make sure that your sights are focused on him. He has no idea. He has no idea. So the moment Elijah says that, you can have what you're asking for. But make sure that you're focused on me when that happens. I... I have my own version or my own idea as to what happened, but it must have been to the point of kind of annoying Elijah that he's just staring at him the entire time as they're walking and, you know, okay, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Who would want to take his eyes off him if that's the case? You know, I don't want to, like, avert my eyes for one second and turn around and be like, where did he go? And then miss the whole thing because you're not told how quickly it's going to happen. You're not told when it's going to happen. He, of course, saw it. And Elisha saw it. Of course he did. Of course he did. He was so determined and focused on everything else that he's doing. God never disappoints those who submit to him and that are seeking to glorify him. Elijah made it really simple. Really simple for Elijah. He says, if thou see me when I'm taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. That was all the motivation Elisha needed to then fix his eyes on his master. Those who will follow the Lord and those who will be successful in ministry will be the ones who 
allow nothing to stand between them and their Savior. They're allowed to behold things once they're doing that, which are often hidden from the eyes of the world and from those that are half-hearted in their service for the ministry. Elisha would receive more than just spiritual vision, but also spiritual perception. He not only saw, but he understood the significance of what he saw. Look at verse number 12 again. It says, and Elisha saw it, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Now, we don't necessarily pick it up right away, but he says more here than what we realize. He doesn't call it the chariot of fire. The Bible says that. He calls it chariot of fire in verse number 11. It says, and it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire. He refers to it there in verse number 12 as the chariot of Israel. What did this mean? And why does he preface that with the cry, my father, my father? Elijah was interpreting, or Elisha rather, was interpreting for us the incredible scene that he's able to witness, which was in every way supernatural. Why did God carry away Elijah like this? What is the significance of what Elisha was able to witness? The Bible, I believe, is the greatest commentary on itself. Therefore, to answer these questions, I'm not going to take you to another book or some theologian or some scholar who's come up with some idea as to what he believes it is. I'm going to draw your attention to a few other portions of God's word. We read in Psalm 20 and verse number 7. The Bible says this. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, there was good reason for the psalmist to say this, because if you remember the history of the nation of Israel, there was a time when they were being chased by Pharaoh and his army, where God allowed the seas of the Red Sea to just part and the children of Israel to pass through on dry ground. And then Pharaoh and his army came in trying to come after them and God just brought the seas back and just destroyed and swallowed up Pharaoh and his army. And listen to what we read in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 23. It says, And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then we read in chapter 15 of Exodus, and verses 3 through 6, the Bible says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. You see, horses and chariots may be looked upon for protection and power, but the followers of God will always find their sufficiency in God alone. And sadly, even those who knew this truth were quick to forget it. We read in Psalm 106, verses 13 and 21, it says, They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. You see, Israel went so far as to seek alliances with ungodly nations until one of their prophets cried out to them to repent and turn to God. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 31 and verse number 1. Isaiah 31 verse 1, the Bible says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, 
and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. What a terrible thing to have said. But it was the truth of what they were doing. Rather than trusting in God, they were seeking alliance in what appeared to be great military power and strength. A lot of horsemen and a lot of horses and a lot of chariots. My, that must be what we need to fight off the enemy that is coming at us. But now consider again what Elisha meant when he cried out as he did here in verse number 12 of 2 Kings chapter 2. Again, and Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. See, as Elisha watched Elijah being carried away into heaven, he knew that things were going to be different. For quite some time now, Elijah had been the one to stand against the wickedness of Israel under the reign of a man by the name of Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel. I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. The same wickedness and idolatry that began under Ahab and Jezebel, it continued after Ahab's death. And Elijah was one of the few that was still standing faithfully with God. And the battle against wickedness and the battle against idolatry, there in Israel, Elijah was in the army of the Lord. He was armed with Israel's true chariots and true horses as he fought against Jezebel and he fought against the prophets of Baal. Jezebel was determined to kill Elijah. And he quickly became the most wanted man in Israel. And as Elisha watched Elijah being carried away into heaven, he realized that the few faithful servants of God there who had not bowed to Baal were losing the chariot of Israel as Elijah was being taken to heaven. Elijah had been a pillar for God during a time when it was not just unpopular to stand for God, but standing for God often required paying, for, paying with it for your life. Again, this speaks to the humility and the modesty of Elisha as he held Elijah in such a high regard and he understood the significant role that Elijah played in helping the few faithful Jews who had not bowed their knee to Baal to still remain strong during a time when worshiping God was so unpopular that people were being killed for it. And this is why Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit that was given to Elijah because he viewed Elijah, he viewed his master on such a higher level that he thought he could ever get to. And in order for him to be even half as successful as Elijah had been, he would need double the help from God that was given to Elijah. And fortunately, Elisha witnessed Elijah's departure and he received from God exactly what he would need to serve God to the fullest. So this begins the personal ministry of the prophet Elisha. And he wastes no time with this first miracle. And it's interesting because with as many miracles as Elijah did, Elisha would go on to do way more. I want you to notice first the timing of the miracle. The timing of the miracle. Look at verse number 12 again. It says, And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. The timing of the miracle. Now, I haven't read to you the miracle just yet, 
But I want you to understand what is really going on here. Now, this is not a, a celebratory act of Elisha here as it talks about him tearing his clothes. He's not jumping up and down with joy as Elijah departs. For the better part of 10 years, he has ministered to Elijah. And now they're separated. And Elisha is having to continue the ministry on his own. Elijah is now gone for good. When Jesus was arrested, fast forwarding to the New Testament, when he was crucified, when he was buried in the tomb, the disciples were devastated for those three days. Devastated. Their spirits were crushed. They didn't know what to think. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know if, if life would get any better, if it was just downhill from this point. And this action of Elisha here in verse number 12 shows us that he was grieved. And that is an expected response. Even though the outcome was well known that Elijah would be carried away into heaven by God. The sons of the prophets even knew it. When it actually became a reality, it saddened the prophet. It's important to note that even though he was sorrowful, he was still under control. I, I think him tearing, or tearing his clothes in two was also symbolic of, of how the nation of Israel was going to be impacted and ultimately how they had rejected the ministry of Elijah up to this point. As much as all this saddened Elisha, we don't see him crawl into a hole and, crawl and, and just cry for, him for days. What good does it to despair over the loss of a prominent servant of God and to have that prolonged. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel sorrow, that we shouldn't feel grief over someone that, that passes away, but in no way should these feelings be prolonged to the point where we're unable to do what God has actually called us to do. Some of the best work that servants of the Lord are able to accomplish is done during some of the darkest hours of our lives. When men are at their lowest is when they need the Lord the most. What kind of a servant of God would Elisha had amounted to if after he watched Elijah taken away into heaven, if he decided, you know what, this is all too much for me. I'm going to need at least a year's sabbatical to really process everything that has happened and to figure out what I'm going to be doing on my own. Because for the better part of the last 10 years, I've been working side by side with this guy and he's been doing primarily everything. So I'm going to need the course and just map out everything and figure out what life is now going to be like without him. I'm taking a year off before I do anything. What good would that have been? The best time for Elisha to prove to God that he's ready for what God has called him to do was immediately after Elijah had been carried away into heaven. So while the timing of this miracle, which again, we haven't mentioned yet, happened immediately in the wake of Elijah's departure, it served as the perfect launching point for Elisha to begin his own personal ministry. So this is the timing of the miracle. But notice second, the object of the miracle. The object of the miracle. So Elijah and Elisha, if you remember, at this point where they are, they have crossed the Jordan River as they left Jericho. And now Elijah's been carried away and Elisha is going to return. This natural barrier, though, is still there. The Jordan River stands between him and Jericho. They were allowed to pass through on dry ground, but that was only after Elijah took up his mantle, wrapped it together, and smote the waters of the Jordan River, which parted, this, parted the waters. So Elisha, 
as he's returning, has to cross this river again, but now it's up to him to figure out how to cross it with Elijah gone because Elijah is the one who did it in the first place. And notice what we read in verse number 13. It says, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. This was the first time that Elisha would do anything like this. And rather than burying his head in the sand when faced with an obstacle, he faces it head on. I have to admit, we don't do this enough. We're often guilty of closing our eyes when difficulties come or trying to pretend like they don't even exist while hoping that they're just going to go away on their own. Has that ever worked out for you? Have you been able to close your eyes to a problem or to turn away and then hope that by the time you turn back that it's dealt with or it's gone? Has that ever worked? But we still do it, don't we? Isn't the definition of insanity doing the same thing and expecting different results? So by definition, are we all insane? You all are, I don't do, no. We're all insane, right? This is the most ridiculous thing and we do this all the time. The car's check engine light comes on. So, you know, we don't want to deal with it. We'll put a little piece of tape over it. Does the problem go away? Does the car fix itself? Not yet, at least. We have bills that we don't like to pay. Can we throw them in the trash and just hope that no one's going to call us and no creditor is going to call and debt collector is going to call? Problem solved, right? It's in the trash. I don't have to worry about it. Out of sight, out of mind. Done, right? I have friends who maybe are not the best influence on me. So the, the, the answer to that is, you know, when I'm around these friends, I'll just be a stronger and fight off temptation better, right? Problem solved. Maybe we talk to people every day, but always give an excuse why we don't share the gospel with them. Someone else will do it. It's not a convenient time for me. I've got too many things on my plate right now. I just don't have time to stop and talk to this person. I need to keep going, go about my day, finish up what I need to do. Someone else will come behind me and talk to this person that needs the gospel. Problem solved, right? No. Closing our eyes and pretending that things will go away or pretending that things are going to get taken care of on their own gets us nowhere. Nor is anything gained by underestimating our problems or belittling them. Standing before the Jordan River, as what it says there in verse 13, he stood by the bank of the Jordan, was a test of Elisha's faith. So rather than crying about it, he stood up to it. And this is exactly why God allows his servants to be confronted with tests and difficulties to try us and to see who we're really trusting in. Because if we're trusting in ourselves, then we're going to look at this obstacle and think, yeah, there's no way this is happening. I know how we came through, and Elijah part of the Jordan River, he's gone. There's no way I'm getting through this. And if I can't swim, then, and I'm, and there's no boat, there's no chance. If we're trusting in ourselves, that's the thought process we have. But if we're trusting in God, there's going to be another thought process, isn't there? So this is the object of the miracle, second. But notice third, the instrument and the means for the miracle. The instrument and the means for the miracle. Look again at verse number 13. 
It says, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. When Elijah's mantle, which was another word for it, kind of like an overcoat, fell to Elisha's feet as Elijah was carried away into heaven, he knew that his request to have a double portion from God had been granted. Not only had he kept his focus on Elijah as he was carried away, but God gave him the gift of the prophet's garment as an additional token of receiving this double portion of his spirit. This is where the test came in. How would he make use of the prophet's mantle? Whenever God grants us power, he is sure to test as to how we're going to use that power that he gives. After Solomon had asked the Lord for an understanding heart to best govern God's people, almost immediately he is faced with the test as two women approach him, arguing about whose baby this child is that they're holding belongs to. No sooner did the Spirit of God descend upon Christ at his baptism was Christ led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. No sooner were the disciples granted the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they went on, each of them, as you read through the book of Acts, to face persecution for standing up and preaching Christ. God tests all of us to make sure that we're using his gifts for his purpose. We don't like this too much because we'd prefer to receive all of the gifts without having to go through any of the tests. Which ironically, God gives us his gifts in the first place and the power that goes along with it for the specific purpose of overcoming the test that he gives. But we want the gifts without the tests. Do you see the irony here? He gives you the one for the other and we just want the one without the other. Rather than viewing tests as an opportunity for God to shine through us, we view these opportunities as an obstacle we don't want to have to deal with. Do you think Elisha was discouraged when he came upon the Jordan River and it wasn't still parted? Do you think he was discouraged when he came upon uh, the Jordan River and didn't know what he was going to do to get across? Having just witnessed Elijah being carried away into heaven and picked up his mantle, confirming that he had just received a double portion just that he had asked for, do you really think that he looked upon the Jordan River as an unwanted obstacle? He knew there were going to be obstacles. He knew them. He knew that they were coming. He knew that life after Elijah was going to be incredibly difficult. And that is why God gave him everything that he would need. It wasn't as if Elisha picked up Elijah's mantle and cried out to God, Is this it? This is all you're giving me? Part the heavens. Show something to me specifically. You know, send the Holy Spirit upon me in a dove so I know with absolute confirmation that I've received everything that I need to receive. Is that what he did? No. He didn't look and cry out to God and say, This is all you're going to give me? What am I supposed to do with this? He didn't say any of that. He gladly picked up Elijah's mantle and went and faced obstacles head on knowing that God had properly equipped him for whatever obstacle would stand in his way. I want you to notice fourth, the mode of the miracle. The mode of the miracle. Look at verse number 14. It says, And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? 
And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. So Elisha took the mantle and used it exactly as it was intended to be used. Elisha had already proven his devotion to God and how faithfully he had served Elijah, how faithfully he had followed Elijah, and now the double portion became his. What we see here is that he followed the pattern from his master Elijah. For when you look back at verse number 8, we see Elijah do exactly the same thing when the two prophets first crossed Jordan, the Jordan River coming from Jericho. Look at what it says in verse number 8. It says, And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together, and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. So he does the same thing. Is there not a lesson in there for us? Are we not to pattern our lives after the example of our master? If we're to be successful in ministry, is it not going to be in following in our Savior's footsteps? It's when we deviate from Christ's leading that we find ourselves struggling, questioning our calling. How often are we guilty of starting something the right way only to change halfway through? It's almost as if we get too carried away with how good things are going that we convince ourselves that you know, maybe we can meander a little way from the path. Maybe do things our own way. The Apostle Paul admonished the believers in Galatia for this. He said in Galatians 1, 6, and 7, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The path of success is the path of Christ. And when you step away from that is when we are met with all sorts of problems. So Elisha made use of that mantle and he followed in his master's footsteps and number five i want you to notice the meaning of the miracle the meaning of the miracle everything that we've seen thus far in the life of elisha it mirrors what each true servant of christ goes through and what they experience they're called by god they're tested by god they're directed in the right path and they're given power through the holy spirit the miracles we will see elisha do are not viewed as an exception to the rule and think about the incredible mission that God has called every single believer to. Believers are called to bear witness of Jesus Christ to everyone that is unsaved. We're to bring the message of God's grace and truth to those that are spiritually dead. How in the world are we supposed to have any sort of an impact on those who have been spiritually blinded by Satan and are slaves to him? How are we supposed to have an impact on these people? The same way that Elisha overcame the obstacle of the Jordan River. We have, been, we, we, uh, we have to be driven and powered by the Holy Spirit. By doing as his master Elijah did and using the power that had been given to him straight from God, Elisha was able to part the waters of the Jordan River. Notice what it says in verse, in, in verse 14 once again. Verse 14 says, And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. Elisha asking that question, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? was his way of saying, Lord, prove that you're with me as much as you were with him. And sure enough, the waters parted. And he was able to go across. 
the meaning of the miracle. Notice sixth, the value of the miracle, the value of the miracle. Elijah may not have been present when this happened, but the God of Elijah was. The miracle validated everything for Elisha, for he knew with absolute certainty that he had received the double portion from God. He used the same means that Elijah did, and God was pleased to honor Elisha's faith and grant the same result. And the last point, number seven, the recognition of the miracle, because others were there to witness what happened. Look at verse number 15. It says, Then when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Parting the waters of the Jordan River convinced the sons of the prophets that Elisha had received that double portion from God. True servants of Christ manifest, they evidence the power of the Holy Spirit through ministering to the people around them. What kind of impact are you having on those that God has put in your life today? People are watching at times when we don't even realize it. People are watching. Are we living for Christ? Are we following in our master's footsteps? Do your children see that you keep God first in your home? Do your grandchildren see it? Do your great-grandchildren see it? It is nothing short of a miracle to be able to lead people to Christ and then to be able to disciple them and train them to follow Christ every single day. Regardless of what stage you're able to minister to someone, don't ever shortchange the work that God can do through you to change the life of someone that he has brought in your path. Just be a willing vessel, a willing vessel that is driven and powered by the Holy Spirit, and let God show you what wonders he can do through you. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to learn a few things from the life of Elisha, Lord, specifically as he began his own personal ministry. Lord, there are so many things that we can touch on and many more that we haven't even mentioned, Lord, that are relatable to us and mirror the things that we deal with even today as, as believers and servants of you. But I pray, Lord, that the things that we've mentioned here this morning would really resonate with us Lord, and impress upon us the desire to faithfully serve you and to focus all of our attention on you. Lord, help us never to discount the work that you're doing, even when we don't always see the results that we expect to see. For we know, Lord, that even when we're laboring for you, no matter what labor we do, it is never done in vain. Encourage us, Lord, uplift us. May we remain faithful and true and keep our gaze and our focus solely on you realizing, Lord, that you bring success when your work is done your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.